You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There was a, an ad on this famous Russian hacking forum from uh, Revil, a ransomware group, and they were basically looking for groups that would be willing to work with them and share their earnings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Montaz Saznaskas from Cyber News on how he and his colleagues applied for a job with a ransomware gang. All right, Joe, before we get to our stories this week, we've got some follow-up. We had a kind listener named Christopher write in. He wrote, Dave and Joe, just wanted to start by saying a quick thank you for interviewing Colonel Hamilton and Mr. Kahlberg. Dave, good interview. Thank you very much, Christopher. Dave does a very good job with the interviews. (laughs) I appreciate that. I always enjoy getting a view from the top, so to speak. Joe, you actually called us warfighters. That's not a term we hear very much outside of the community. But indeed, that is what we are. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. That's nice. It's a lot easier than saying soldiers, Marines, airmen, and sailors. You say (laughs) warfighters. Right, right. Question. I am just getting into the cybersecurity world, and I'm about to start my AAS in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. From talking to people, they say degrees are relative, but certifications matter. Well, there's about 12.2 million different certifications, (laughs) or at least it seems that way. A little bit of hyperbole, but yes. What certs matter, and what is a good starting point for cybersecurity? Thank you. Well, Joe, this is a world that you are deeply involved in with your being at Hopkins. Right, yes. (laughs) Actually, at Hopkins, we we don't put a lot of value on certs. Really? Um, Yeah, the professors there seem to think that they're more training-focused, and it, it's true. They are more training-focused, hmm. and our mission tends to be more education-focused. And okay. We do differentiate between those two. However, in out in the real world, once you get beyond the ivory tower of the education, <laughs> right. Right, you do need these certifications. And the first certification I recommend for anybody in the United States, particularly if they want to do work with the United States government, is the TIAA Security Plus. Hmm. Okay. So get that certification. It wouldn't hurt also to get a Network Plus. I don't think you need... A plus, that's the putting together PCs, or at least it used to be. I haven't looked at that in a couple of years. But Network Plus and Security Plus would be great starting certifications. You don't have to have any time in the industry to get those certifications, just the training to understand things. But Security Plus is a minimum requirement for getting any job working with the federal government or as a contractor for the federal government to do any of the networking stuff there. You have to have a Security Plus certification at a minimum. Okay. So that's a good starting point. When you get into other... Uh, certifications, it depends on where you want to go. If you want to go into penetration testing, the Certified Ethical Hacker is a good certification to get. There are other certifications like from ISC Squared, like the CISSP. That is a great certification to have, but it requires five years of experience in the field. So it's not going to be your first certification. Mm. You can actually take the certification exam and then become like an associate member and have that as a certification, but it's not a full CISSP until you've been in the industry for five years. So my recommendations start with the Net Plus and Security Plus, and then see where you're going to go in your career, mm-hmm. uh, and then get the certification that meets those requirements. The other thing is network. That helps a lot. Meet people. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Look for mentors. The toughest job to get in cybersecurity is the first job. After that, they're all easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much demand, but I right. think Christopher makes a good point here that despite there being demand, 
you and I have talked about this many times, the frustration we feel because they'll they'll have these job listings for entry-level jobs and they'll say, you know, entry-level job, minimum wage, 20 years experience required. Right. <laughs> Here's a dozen certs that you need. Right. And, you know, it's like how in what way, shape, or form is that an entry-level job? Yeah, but- <laughs> exactly. I really want to just send a letter in or, or pick up the phone and call people and, and say, you're never going to fill this position. It's right. just not going to happen. Yeah. Ugh. Well, maybe they have to learn that and then adjust what they're asking for. Who knows? I, I don't know. Not, not a world I'm involved with. Right. But, uh, Christopher, thank you for sending in your note. Uh, we do appreciate it. And, of course, we'd love to hear from from all of you, or, well, not all of you at the same time, but uh, if you have a question, <laughs> you can send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's dive into some stories this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us. My story comes from uh, the Naked Security folks over at Sophos, uh, Paul Ducklin, who's been a guest on our show before, uh, and it's titled, How to Hack into 5,500 Accounts Just Using credential stuffing. Hmm. Um, and the article uh, starts off with some you know, common uh, knowledge about uh, passwords and password reuse and you know, not using some of the more common passwords. Uh, Paul goes through some of the, the top passwords on the Have I Been Pwned database. Right. One, two, three, four, five, six is the most common <laughs> password with 24 <laughs> million appearances on Have I Been Pwned. 24 million appearances for mm-hmm. that password. Yep. But there are some other things in here that they point out. You know, people, they often think they're being clever with their use of, of passwords. In other words, they'll say like, oh, for my Facebook uh, password, it's uh, pickle jar FB. And the FB is for Facebook. You right. know? But for Twitter, it's pickle jar TW. Right. <laughs> and for Instagram, it's pickle jar IG. Well, guess what? That, right. The, That's just password reuse. Right. How hard is it going to be for the bad guys who are going through these databases of passwords? If they, I guarantee you, if they see a suffix on a password that's dash FB, the jig is up. Right. They know, yep. they know what you're doing. They've and, got you. In fact, they may, they probably have automated scripts to look for that sort of thing. Absolutely, I, I it's would. called a regular expression, and you can find it very easily. Yeah. So the story that Paul highlights in this article is about one gentleman who the Department of Justice actually charged. He was uh, out of San Francisco, and this person made off with $800,000 in just a few months. What this person did was he would figure out what payroll service a particular company was using. Right. Right? Because chances are if one employee is on a particular payroll service – Everyone else is going to be, you know, on the same payroll service. That's generally how it works. Right. Right. So one person's password, for example, uh, or uh, credentials rather, would come up in a password breach for a particular payroll service. And let's say it was, you know, it was uh, me at thecyberwire.com, right? Right. And it was my login for a payroll service. Well, this person, this this bad guy, would then go to uh, the list of employees at the Cyberwire. And look for the other folks who work here. They would follow the same pattern of their email addresses, mm-hmm. right? And that's easy to figure out yep. usually, right? If they're um, not published on a website somewhere, yeah, right? you might and, have to figure them out. But yeah. Normally, they're easier to get than that. It's usually a pattern. Right. Most companies establish a pattern for their employee names and, and email addresses. So they would go through that. They would figure out that or assume that those people were using the same payroll service. Then they would go through and look for matching those emails with uh, – password uh, databases online, some of the breached passwords uh-huh. uh, that are out there, and they would just uh, count stuff. on people reusing passwords. Right. And as you and I know and our listeners know, way too many people reuse their passwords. A lot of people, yeah. 
so they could log into these payroll companies, stuff the accounts with the credentials, and uh, as we say, he, th- this person would um, change the person's uh, account information mm-hmm. so that their next payment would go to a debit card account that he controlled rather than their own bank account. Right. And over the course of about a year or so, back from uh, 2017 to 2018, this person skimmed off about $800,000. Wow. That's that's, that's good, real that's real money. Yeah, that's a good payday for some or a good mm-hmm. a good salary. Yeah. The good news is this person got caught and uh, the DOJ is bringing them to justice. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Paul uh, Ducklin has a few recommendations here. Of course, don't reuse passwords. Right. Uh, yeah. And your clever variations on your password are not nearly as clever as you think they are. 100% agree. They are pretty much ineffective. Of course, use a password manager. Joe, have we mentioned using a password manager? A couple times. Yeah, <laughs> we, I, th- I seem could... to vaguely remember saying use a password manager. Right. We could change the name of this show to use a password <laughs> right. manager, and it would probably be effective. Turn on two-factor authentication. It struck me when I was reading this article that if folks had two-factor enabled for their payroll accounts, in other words, you know, to either log into the payroll accounts or if their payroll account allowed them to have some sort of notification if any of their critical information was changed, right? that would go a long way towards preventing this sort of thing. Yes, that's a good point, that the, the company kind of bears some responsibility here. Mm. When somebody logs in and changes account information for where you're going to send their paycheck, their livelihood, right? you owe at least an email to that person. Well, maybe— Somebody should get notified. If, if not the, the folks at, at your company who are handling payroll— Yeah, somebody should get notified. Yeah, that's, and that's then they can decide to what to do about it. So right. if, if, you're, if your payroll system enables you to do that, then you should definitely do that. And if it doesn't, ask them why. Right. <laughs> Say, this is something we'd like to have. Uh, and then, of course, report payment anomalies. If you notice anything is wrong with your, your payment, your, your, uh, your salary, whatever, and anything's coming to you from your company, the sooner you report it— even if it's something that seems odd, like you see a charge for a dollar or a right. – because a lot of times these folks are testing to see if the system works, to see if they can if they can indeed make money move around. In fact, a lot of services use micropayments as a way to test that banking information is correct before they actually send real payments. Right? right, right. So if you see that kind of activity and you didn't request it, you know something's up. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Again, that's from Paul Ducklin over at Naked Security. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Becky Bracken over at ThreatPost. Uh, and she is talking about two recent reports. And the first one comes from the threat intelligence team with Greathorn. And we've talked about some of their research before. Hmm. They've made a discovery about people sending lewd or adult-related phishing lures into people's email accounts. Hmm. This is the interesting part. It's not simply just libido driving users to click these suggestive scams. These things are intended to shock the user, right? So think about it. You're at work. Yeah. Maybe you work in a cubicle farm, and someone sends you in something that's rather suggestive. Okay. Right? <laughs> suggestive or perhaps explicit. Explicit. <laughs> suggestive right. of explicit material. Right. That kind of thing. Right. Okay. Um, and you're like, whoa, this can't happen at work. I can't have this kind of thing going on. Maybe you are, Right. Because that's you know, the moment when your boss is passing by your cubicle and looks in. And right. that's up on your screen and now you're in trouble. Exactly. It opens the door for them to make the reckless click, right? Hmm. And I like the term that they've come up with here. They call it dynamite fishing. Are you familiar with the idea of dynamite fishing? <laughs> I am familiar with dynamite fishing, yes. <laughs> for those of you who may not be familiar with it, you sit in a pond full of fish and you light a stick of dynamite, throw it over the boat, and wait for the, the dynamite to go off, and then simply 
roll around and pick up the fish that you've stunned. Right, collect all the fish who've <laughs> right. floated to the surface. Yeah. It doesn't always involve explicit material, hmm. but the goal is to put the user off balance to scare them or put them into an, into some kind of excited emotional state mm-hmm. and decrease the brain's ability to make rational decisions. Mm. So, Dave, I want to make a streaming recommendation to our friends. If anybody has Netflix, they have a documentary series on there called Human, the World Within. And the first episode is called React. It spends a good bit of time talking about how people react in these kind of situations. And they have one story about a woman who was in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit and how she actually shut down, right? And it all starts, this is the same thing in social engineering. They're trying to fire off a part of your brain called the amygdala, Mm. right? And trying to get you to just cognitively, your your focus to narrow, the cognitive narrowing focus. We had a guest that talked about that a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. It's remarkably effective. And while it's great out in the woods when you're confronted with a bear, it's, it's not good when you get one of these emails. Right, right. Right. These URLs that are in these emails essentially do one of three things. Either download malware, they send users to a bogus site to trick them into giving up their payment information, or they track users for a follow-up attempt. Hmm. And they use a link trick called email pass-through, which really just puts a, a unique number that they know who is clicking on the link. Once you click on the link, that actually opens you up to being blackmailed hey, why are you looking at this? Right? Oh, I see. Right, And Great Horn thinks that this is part of their scam, is, is that they're going to further exploit these people and try to get them. So if you get one of these emails, just delete it. It's don't, Try not to be shocked. Uh, that, that's also a good point. In the case of the woman from Puerto Rico, what she did to overcome that shock again was she enrolled herself to become an emergency response person. Oh, wow. So that now she's comfortable with getting into these kind of positions and knows how to react. She's experienced them. Right through training, and that's what we talk about frequently here. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was a great show, and I thought you know who'd really like this is the listeners to Hacking Humans. So <laughs> I make that recommendation. Uh, the second report comes from Agari, their uh, cyber intelligence division. They call it Acid. What they did was they put out eight thousand account credentials that they had control of onto a phishing site, and they wanted to see what happened. And a quarter of those account credentials were automatically tested as soon as they were posted. Hmm. So these guys are out there watching these things, and they test them immediately as soon as you drop the information. There are three families of attacks that were responsible for 85% of the activity, demonstrating that it was a small number of actors, or more likely, this in my opinion, uh, versions of phishing code. So I, I think there are these these kits out there that just let people try these things out. Quickly. Right, it's just I, all automated. Right. I think it's more likely that there are three or four of these big products out there, not three or four groups. I think there's hundreds of groups using these same three or four products. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, 92% of the compromised accounts were manually breached by an attacker. About 20% of those manually breached in the first hour, and 91% were accessed within the first week of compromise. Wow. If your email credentials wind up in a phishing attack, you're 91% likely to have someone get into that account within a week, mm-hmm. is what that's saying. The majority of these accounts were only accessed once. But some of them were accessed for long periods of time where the, these guys maintained access. And as these attackers gained access to an increasing number of counts, they were used to launch additional attacks, hmm. which makes sense, right? Yeah. I wonder about the the single access. Does that just mean they're collecting them to then sell to other people? Uh, probably. That, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, probably. Uh, they saw these scammers create forwarding rules, pivot into other applications like Microsoft OneDrive and Microsoft Teams, attempt to send outgoing phishing emails, sometimes by the thousands, hmm. and use the accounts to set up uh, infrastructure for business email compromise attacks. Mm-hmm. So two studies, 
really interesting studies. We'll put a link in the show notes and you can uh, take a look at, at the article. Yeah. And again, I mean, so much of this, if you had uh, multi-factor authentication enabled, it right. would shut a lot of this down. Shut a lot right? of it down, right? Because yeah. a lot of this stuff is automated. Mm-hmm. And to get by multi-factor authentication, you kind of have to give each account personal attention. And these bad guys don't have the time to do that. Right. Right. So they're going to script it. And right. they're going to go for the low-hanging fruit. All right. Well, uh, interesting stuff for sure. We will have links to uh, both of those uh, studies in our show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day is a short one today, and it comes from a listener named Stop. Stop writes, received this call just now. Never heard one this convincing. Nearly got me too. And he has a quote in there. It says, hi, this is Amazon.com. This call is to authorize payment of 700 something something dollars for your purchase of an iPhone 11. If you didn't make this purchase, please press one to speak to customer service. Then he writes, because I have recently made some purchases from Amazon, and this is the first time I've done it in a long time, I immediately feared my credit card had been leaked or my account credentials stolen and someone was making purchases. So it nearly got me to press one, but I realized it was likely a scam and that I should contact the company directly myself to ask them if they attempted to call me about this. Love the show. Keep up the great advice. They hit stuff right at the right time, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't normally shop at Amazon. And he had made some purchases recently, and then he gets this call. And that's how these things work, mm-hmm. right? You send out hundreds of these calls, thousands of these calls, hoping to find the person in staff's position who responds and goes, uh-oh, then you have a problem, right? right. The, you know, you as the victim are like, I better push one because I want to make sure of this. Did I order the right phone? I thought I ordered an Android phone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a random chance, but if you put enough calls out there, you're going to hit somebody like this. Mm-hmm. So good on staff for not falling for this. A phone tree where you have to press one, that sounds like Amazon, right? Right. <laughs> right. Know, that, that sounds like a big company. You know, yes. it doesn't sound like just a, some scammer who's calling you directly. So it lends some credibility to it. If you do get one of these calls, do not scam bait these guys because they're calling your phone number. Mm. They already have your number. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you, Stoff, for sending that in. Again, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can send your catch of the days to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mantas Saznaskas. Mm-hmm. He is from Cyber News, and uh, he shares the story of how he and his colleagues applied for a job with a ransomware gang. Here's my conversation with Mantas Saznaskas. I was quite uh, interested and involved into tracking some uh, smaller time uh, cyber criminals starting some time ago when I um, uh, tracked this uh, old school IRC botnet, then another one. And then I thought, hey, why not try to infiltrate or whatever, talk with these guys that are doing some serious business and maybe get some insight how uh, it all works from uh, being inside or being one of them. Well, let's walk through it together. I mean, how do you get your start? Where do you find these folks, first of all? Fishing from my side was quite easy. There was a, an ad on this famous Russian hacking forum from uh, Reveal, a ransomware group, and they were basically looking for groups that would be willing to work with them and share their earnings. So they basically take like 30% of their share and uh, they give a 70% to the affiliate groups. And basically affiliate groups, they do all the hard work 
like initial compromise, hacking the company, doing lateral movement, and basically putting the, the specific one, Cobalt Strike Beacons. And then uh, the main group in this specific case, they were working with Ragnar Locker. They uh, provide the locker and the service to uh, extort the money from the company then. So you start a conversation with these folks and, and how do they go about vetting you, making sure that you're someone they want to do business with? When they posted the ad, I got several requests and uh, some were not serious, but this specific request sounded quite serious. And uh, it seemed that these people knew what they were talking about. And basically they invited me to join in. Then I replied to the ad wanting to join uh, this affiliate group since, I mean, I, I knew a little bit, or probably more than a little bit, what they were looking specifically and what skills do these people should possess. So I basically, you know, social engineered my way into it. So my application would be interesting for them or like what they were looking for. So yeah, when we started talking, they were very adamant that they were looking for people who are native Russian speakers. Mm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you are. To be honest, I am not a native Russian speaker. Oh. So I had to use my coworker <laughs> to help <laughs> me out. <laughs> Forgive my uh, American ignorance. What is your native language? Lithuanian. Ah, okay. To be honest, a lot of people in Lithuania do speak Russian and a lot of them speak it very well. But I'm from a newer generation that speaks maybe English better than Russian. And I besides, see. like they are very adamant because they use like slang and spoken language. So if they sense that you might not be, and I was afraid of that, they might just stop the whole communication. Like our communication happened through the Talks chat. And uh, yeah, you basically do not have uh, nicknames. So basically I uh, like social engineered a persona that lives in uh, a certain country, not in Russia, but in, a, in another country, neighboring uh, Russian country with uh, like a town and everything, because they did ask me some things that you know you could not Google probably, or you would have mm. to Google very well to answer that, like a street name or whatever, or like what's on that street. So yeah, there was this one specific uh, um, question from them once, but when I think when they were quite comfortable with me that I'm like a Russian speaker and uh, I have uh, very good cyber criminal skills or uh, <laughs> these skills to um, uh, hack, penetrate the company, then they were quite willing to share some more information with me. And what information did they share? What did you learn from there? Yeah, so basically they started asking me some things and they started telling me uh, how they worked. So, I mean, it, for probably most of the people that are involved in these like ransomware investigations or whatever, it might be just a known thing. But yeah, so basically they have targets. They do a very thorough OSINT and uh, espionage on companies. And uh, in this specific group, there were four people which one I identified as uh, the number one guy. He didn't have uh, any nickname. And mm. uh, the, the other guy that I called number two guy, because I thought he was like kind of like a number two guy. So yeah, so the number one guy would do like a very thorough OSINT, espionage on companies. The selection process took 
maybe like two weeks or so. And then on Friday evening, they uh, basically that main guy, number one guy says, we have five targets. He gives out the targets and uh, do your work. So basically uh, this specific group would uh, compromise the company or would have a company already with an RDP port that is vulnerable or a zero logon bug. And then uh, they would go on and compromise Microsoft HTA process, basically for scripting, and then work their magic with the COBOL strike, which is probably like number one tool that they use. And and yeah, and, and then after they do like all the lateral movement and uh, have the, the whole company's network in their tentacles, then they put uh, beacons in there. I see. Now, at some point, you know, you decided that it was uh, not acceptable for you to keep going with them. But had you played along longer, what would their expectations of you have been? What would they have called upon you to do specifically? And they did. So, yeah, so I ended, well, kind of ended uh, when they gave out the targets. So they expected me to work those targets as well with them together. And I had to... uh, uh, I had to somehow ditch that work. So I made like totally lame excuses to them. And I thought, <laughs> okay, th- this is it. They will not going to respond to me anymore. They will <laughs> stop all the communication with me and, and, and so on. But to my surprise, they did not. That number two guy still kept talking with me. And I said, okay, maybe I'm not that skilled. You know, I couldn't do that. And uh, maybe you can teach me somehow you know, so he then promised me to add me to this other group that basically like a, that need to learn more, but mm-hmm. that never happened. I was expecting maybe, but uh, yeah, that never happened. Yeah. Interesting that there are several levels here, you know, where they, they had a, a way to kind of train people up to, to have the skills that they needed once they'd vetted you. Yeah, but I mean, from when we talked about everything, and uh, it was, uh, for, for me, the hard part was to understand all the slangs in, uh, in Russian, like uh, PowerShell uh, or uh, Cobblestrike or uh, MSHTA. They had some grammar mistakes even in Russian or like, you know, when they type it very quickly in the chat. And uh, sometimes you have to act very fast to reply because they were quite, quite often they would say, hey, where are you? Uh, why are you not replying? And so on. While in the meantime, I'm asking my friends who are working in info security, older friends who know Russian well, and I'm like, hey, do you know what this could mean? <laughs> right, right. So you have several chat windows open simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was, I mean, it was fun and also quite exhausting at some times. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's a high stress uh, situation to be in. Yeah. Also, I mean, from how they talked, they were very different from those people that I used to uh, um, uh, chat. Yeah, probably like younger people who uh, these IRC botnet creators or so on, mm-hmm. or like majority of people are, that are probably on raid forums. They're kind of like trolls and uh, not very serious. But these people, when you talk with them, it's like, you know, you're, you would be going to work for Barclays or whatever. I see. There's a certain amount of professionalism there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you come away with? I mean, what was your your sense of these folks? So, you know, you had to break off contact at, at some point, but overall, what are the lessons that you learned here? So I think they're very serious. My hinge is 
probably they even have uh, other daytime jobs, like working as system administrators or whatever. But uh, maybe not if they're earning quite a lot of money. But yeah, from what I understand, they're very, very serious people with also very good skills. Was it surprising to you that you were able to get in with this group relatively easily? Or, I mean, was it was it really the Russian language skills that was the highest bar of entry? Or what was your take so. on that side of things? To me, it was quite surprising, actually. Yeah. I mean, I thought it, it will be harder because I think, well, okay, since this article is now published, I don't know if they read it. I hope not. Or maybe. <laughs> right. Maybe they are going to be listening to this and they will identify that I am the one that was talking with them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't know. Like Also, one of the things that I learned from this is how they cash out the money, which was probably mm-hmm. the most interesting part for me. Even if you receive your uh, you know, ransom with Bitcoins and you're on uh, on the radar from, I don't know, probably like Europol, Interpol, FBI, whatever, then uh, you should be very careful with your Bitcoins and how you cash out. And uh, I didn't even ask them. They asked me if I have means to uh, cash out my uh, cryptocurrency that I'm going to be receiving. So I won't be tracked. So were they looking to you to help them launder that money at all? or, Or was it just for your own profits? No, just for my own profits, because that's when they told me that they have means to, uh, yeah, like launder the money to uh, yeah. get cash from those Bitcoins that would be untraceable. And and yeah, and basically they introduced me to another person who, who basically runs the crypto exchange and uh, they use those unlegitimate, kind of legitimate crypto exchanges that doesn't have KYC, know your customer. And those crypto exchanges help them uh, you know, cash out the money for a fee. When I say cash out, like literally bring the money in cash. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Did you get any sense for, for these folks as, as individuals, you know, the, the types of people that you're we're dealing with here? I mean, it, it sounds like they're very professional. Um, was there a matter of factness to the, the way that they interacted with you? There wasn't. A sense of danger at all. Like, I mean, it was just like talking with uh, your coworkers, kind of friends, mm. especially since we, we were talking for quite some time chatting together. I mean, I don't think that they considered me as their friend because they were always saying like, when when you get the targets, then, then you'll show what you're worth. They maintained a certain skepticism toward you, hoping that you were going to you know show your worth with the, the things that you were able to do. And of course, never got to that point. Never got to that point exactly, yeah. I mean, there were some other interesting parts that uh, this particular group, these two people, like four people in total, but I think these two people together, they were working since like 2009 and doing some other stuff, like selling access to the companies, uh, compromising them, and, uh, and then going on to ransomware. I think this particular group is kind of like a veteran group already. All right, Joe, what do you think? What a great idea. Trying to infiltrate a ransomware gang. (laughs) This is so interesting to me. I'm fascinated by money laundering and how they go about this. I understand the the structure that a lot of these ransomware gangs use. And what he applied to was an affiliate group. Mm -hmm. Because these ransomware gangs have affiliate programs. They're almost franchising ransomware. Right. You go out, 
you get the business, and then we'll take care of everything else and take a 30% cut, which is a pretty lucrative cut for the people that actually do the penetration. It's 70%. Yeah. These people post ads, so it's pretty easy to get in. It's interesting how they were looking for people who spoke Russian natively, and they were going to filter that out by using things like slang and knowledge of specific areas. Mm -hmm. But Madras was successful in socially engineering his way into one of these gangs, which is, I think, is fascinating. Once he gets into the into the gang, you find further business-like structure in there. You've got a leader. You've got a guy who's responsible for OSINT, which is open source intelligence gathering. You've got a guy who's responsible for breaking into things, which is what Madras was one of. And these guys take their job seriously, and they're very skilled. Uh, and then they even go so far as to say, we'll help you get the money out by using one of these semi-legitimate crypto exchanges that literally bring money to the customers. Right, right. Um, in in cash. Yeah, in cash. So you send them your crypto coin, your Bitcoin or whatever, and they buy it and Mm -hmm. then bring you cash, of course, minus some fee. Yeah. But you still make out fairly well. This is an interesting interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we appreciate him taking the time for us. Interesting insights into how some of this happens. And it's good to see the folks infiltrating these types of groups that, uh, you know, they're not as bulletproof as they seem to be or hope to be. Well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 